Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California, as usual. And today, before I begin, I do want to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com. Just check that out. Lots of resources there, including a number of downloads for additional content, videos, and an opportunity to join our investor club. If you're an accredited investor, certainly uh, consider joining our accredited investor group and getting yourself off the sidelines. There's also another group called Wealth Formula Network. Now that is related to a course that we called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. The course itself is great. Got a lot of the the usual suspects on there, Tom Wheelwright and Kenny McElroy and all that to learn the basics of personal finance. But the real value, not that that's not value, but the ongoing value is in our private uh, forums uh, through the Facebook group and also our bi-weekly Zoom video calls. Check that out via wealthformularoadmap.com. Ignore the silly sales video, I should say. It was, uh, I don't know, it's kind of silly. It was some internet marketer who wrote that up for me at the time. But really, it's, you know, it's a great course. And the community therein is is uh, really the value in that. Check it out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as for today, I want to talk a little bit about the topic for today, which is, well, let me just start out by this saying this, you know, uh, as you know, by now, I consider myself a natural entrepreneur. Now, that's not something I I try to be. It's just the way I'm wired. It's what I am. And, and in that regard, it's like saying, I, you know, I'm 6'4". I am 6'4". I, I know that surprised a lot of you in real life when you saw me. You thought I was going to be short, but no, I am 6'4". And about, you know, 215 pounds now. Lost about 30 pounds. I, sh- I think I should congratulate myself on that. But no, uh, I am a natural entrepreneur. I mean, that's just the way I, I was born. School didn't teach me that. School didn't teach me that. Uh, certainly not directly. You know, I I was a history major until I decided I all of a sudden like biochemistry and molecular biology and boom, there I am. Uh, that's what I majored in, but it may surprise you to know that the class I took, the classes I took during college that most resembled my way of entrepreneurial thinking were actually in the area of organic chemistry. Now, higher level organic chemistry uh, relies on integrating the knowledge of how chemicals interact in order to create new relationships and new chemicals. So my organic chemistry exams 
typically consisted of just a couple of questions. You know, there would be an image of one complex molecular structure and then another complex molecular structure. And based on what you learned and all of the tools that you had acquired up to that point, the job was basically to draw out all of the chemical reactions and, uh, you know, to go from one chemical uh, to the other. How do you get there? Basically, it's like, here's where you start. Here's where you end. Now, your job is to create the roadmap using all of these different kinds of reactions that you've learned. Now, the key was the exercise would ultimately, you had to use an appropriate sequence to make one structure out of the other. And there were often multiple ways of doing it. Uh, It wasn't that there was always just one way, but you just had to prove that the way you got to your destination was supported by all of the chemical interactions that were possible and um, that you were following the laws of, of organic chemistry. And listen, it was challenging for sure. In fact, for those of you who are in the medical field, you know that organic chemistry was considered by many the primary weeder class uh, for pre-med students, and most people didn't like it very much. But I was one of those oddballs who really liked organic chemistry and excelled at it. And in fact, my campus job for two years in college was to serve as an organic chemistry tutor. Isn't that kind of funny, uh, considering where I am now? Well, not really, because I loved the idea of solving complex problems via logical, progressive reactions. So there was a certain creativity about it that I find, frankly, to be very parallel to my entrepreneurial life. In organic chemistry, the primary limitations of the problems that I could solve were chemical reactions with which I was not uh, yet familiar. So if I hadn't learned that tool along the way, and that was the only way that you could really get there, well, I wasn't going to solve that problem. If I had the knowledge of the reaction, it effectively served as a tool for solving uh, that particular problem. And if I wasn't aware of the tools that I needed, then I couldn't solve the problem, right? So that's kind of the way it works. So there's an interesting parallel with that limitation concept in the entrepreneurial world as well. First, you have to recognize the problem, right? Uh, If you don't have any knowledge in a particular field, then you don't know what the problems and inefficiencies actually are. And what I mean by that is, think about it this way. If you're in the medical field, you know what the problems that need to be solved are because you are confronted with these inefficiencies or things that drive you nuts every single day. And you think, wow, there's too bad there's not a better way to do that. And where there is a problem or an inefficiency, there is a business. And that's where the entrepreneur comes in. Now, however, someone with an entrepreneurial mind can only solve that problem if he's familiar with that specific inefficiency in the medical field. He may be the guy to solve the problem, but he'll never know it, right? Think about it that way. I mean, if, um, you know, Wayne Gretzky is the greatest ice hockey player who ever lived, you know, and I'm sure he's a great athlete, but what if he was born in sub-Saharan Africa? I mean, he he probably wouldn't have been an ice hockey player. Maybe he would have been a good athlete, but I don't. You know, he, he was the perfect guy to be the greatest hockey player in the world. He just happened to play ice hockey. So so that's tricky because you may have people out there who are great entrepreneurs to solve a problem, but they may never see that problem in the first place. 
So I contend that the best thing for an entrepreneur to do uh, is to learn about as much stuff as he can in hopes of finding problems. You know, the benefit of a broad education, um, you call it the liberal arts education or whatever, uh, spanning multiple fields is really the ability to use tools acquired in one field to tackle problems in others. And I have seen that firsthand. I've actually done some of that myself firsthand. In organic chemistry parlance, again, this would be akin to learning more chemical reactions. And you have those different kinds of, you know, that knowledge and all of a sudden problems come up. And while you pull something out of your your toolkit and boom, and nobody else knew about it uh, who was trying to solve that problem, but you had it. So these days, you know, my entrepreneurial spirit, uh, as you uh, may call it, is focused on investing, as you know, and you know by now that most of the time I do like to keep it boring. Apartment buildings and self-storage are things that people need and will continue to need in the foreseeable future. And, you know, it's it's not speculative. However, I am an investor and increasingly am interested in, you know, uh, making sure I don't miss out on big movements in technology. Like, for example, wouldn't it have been great to get in early on uh, in the Internet? I mean, we saw the Internet happening and, uh, you know, all these companies. But did we really know when it was first starting to pick up that it would be what it is today and smartphones and Apple? What if what if you had the ability to see where this was headed, you'd probably probably get try to get in on the ground floor on some things. Similarly, you know, we started talking about Bitcoin and blockchain in 2017 when I discovered it. And I know that many of you, that was your first experience with it. And uh, you made some significant financial gains. I know some of you have made a lot of money based on that initial, that introduction to it. And that was 2017, four years ago. But guess what? If we'd gotten in a few years earlier, gosh, man, uh, you probably wouldn't even be listening to this show anymore. You'd have so much money. So what should we be paying attention to now, right? Well, I think that the next major technology disruption will be in the field of artificial intelligence. We're already seeing it play out in real time, but believe me, we have not seen anything yet. AI is, as Martin Ford, my guest uh, on today's podcast, is is like you know electricity. It's just going to be everywhere. AI may be the single biggest technology disruption that the world will see uh, in the coming years. And because of that, we as investors... We need to pay attention to it. It's going to change our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. One day, it's just going to be there, just like your iPhone is there now, right? And imagine a world without your smartphone in your hand telling you all how to get from one place to another. And it's even hard to imagine because it is so much part of our life. Well, that is going to be AI on steroids. AI is going to be that on steroids, I should say. And when you are aware of that kind of disruption on the horizon, you have an opportunity also to make money along the way. So it's exciting stuff, right? I mean, what it's going to do to everything and to think about it. And I think it's really worth learning more about. And that's why I have uh, one of the world's leading experts on this on the show today. His name is Martin Ford and he's a futurist and he is uh, one of Silicon Valley's uh, main experts on artificial intelligence. 
When we come back, Martin is going to tell us what we need to know, and I think you're gonna I think you're gonna be pretty amazed. And so we'll have Martin right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Martin Ford. Martin is a futurist, a New York Times bestselling author and speaker and Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He is known as one of the leading experts on robot revolution, artificial intelligence, job automation, and the impact of accelerating technology and workplaces, the economy, and society. He's also uh, a, a prolific author, The Lights in the Tunnel, Automation, Accelerating Technology in the Economy of the Future, 2009, The Rise of Robots, Technology, and the Threat of a Jobless Future, for which he won the 2015 Financial Times McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award, and the latest book, Rule of the Robots, How Artificial Intelligence Will Transform Everything. Martin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I think, you know, we talked a little bit before um, we started about the nature of our group where, you know, we tend to be, um, a lot of us are sort of math science people, but we've gotten into maybe more on the uh, biological sciences and things like that. But this is a really interesting concept that I think a lot of us are hearing about in the periphery and you are sort of in the middle of it, which is AI. So why don't we start with a really basic question? How do you define artificial intelligence? Well, I simply define it as when a machine begins to replicate what we would think of as human intelligence, which is the ability to solve problems and make predictions and uh, optimize things and so forth. These types of problems that previously have been you know, exclusively the province of the human mind are, are increasingly being taken over by machines. And in some ways, the machines are better at, at least at many specific things than human beings are. And I think that um, that's just going to be an enormously important tool for us uh, going forward. That's going to be really disruptive across the board. So to a certain degree, we all, you know, we already have um, some AI, uh, but it's about, uh, you know, I would, I would think that you and other people in your, your space would think that we're really just at the precipice, the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about some of the applications of AI now and where you see it going maybe in the next five to 10 years or 20 years? Yeah. So, so the basic, you know, the core thesis of my book is that artificial intelligence is really becoming 
a systemic technology. I think almost like a utility is going to evolve to be in some ways almost like electricity in the sense that it's going to be everywhere. It's going to touch everything. Um, it's going to be this kind of universal tool that actually brings intelligence, machine intelligence to bear on virtually any problem. And we're already seeing that that happen. So the short answer is that it's going to impact everything. I do think that it's going to be particularly important in science and in medicine. And, and one of my my great hopes for artificial intelligence, I'm, I'm a proponent of the technology. Um, this latest book does talk a lot about the dangers and the risks associated with it, but I think that it's going to be a technology that's absolutely indispensable to us if we're going to overcome the challenges that we're going to face in the coming decades. Um, and the, the primary benefit of it, the most important thing is I think that it will jumpstart innovation across the board because it will, in, in, in essence, amplify our creativity, our, our ability to innovate, to, to generate new ideas. And this is going to be enormously important. So in areas like science and medicine, you're already seeing you know, clear applications of this technology. AI is already being used as an important tool in drug discovery, for example. You know, as your listeners know, a drug molecule has a, a geometric shape to it, right? And it's that geometric shape yeah. that fundamentally de defines uh, the function of a particular drug or, 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 or chemical or molecule. And so it's possible to use a, a form of search in order to search for from, for um, molecules based on shapes and other characteristics. And AI is particularly well suited to that. So there have already been examples of drugs, including a new antibiotic, for example, that was discovered using this kind of machine learning approach. Did they use it much during this whole, uh, you know, the vaccination? During, during I, the I don't, you know, I think they may have used it to some extent. I don't think it played a critical role in that. I think, I mean, certainly computer technology did, and they were, as you know, able to develop vaccine candidates, I think literally within within days in some cases of, of first getting the genetic sequence that was uploaded in China, right? So I, I think it's an important tool in many areas. It's also being used in areas like, you know, planning uh, the, the stage two and three trials, right? Which also requires a lot, you know, there are also applications there. So I think that, that certainly in terms of the next pandemic, there are gonna be important applications for this technology. One of the most important breakthroughs that we've seen, maybe the most important application of, of advanced artificial intelligence that we have seen so far is what DeepMind recently announced with its AlphaFold application. Again, as, as your listeners know, the protein folding problem has been this enormous problem in science, right? It's uh -huh. been at least 50 years that um, scientists have been working on trying how to figure out how can you take the genetic you know, sequence for a protein molecule, and then based on that, predict the geometric configuration that a protein molecule, molecule will fold into, you know, which happens within a tiny fraction of a second after um, the protein mole molecule is, is fabricated in the cell. Um, because again, it's that shape that determines basically the function of the molecule. Right. Um, and so what DeepMind did was they created this alpha fold system that can do that with very, very high fidelity in a way that, that essentially matches what you know, is, is done with very expensive laboratory techniques, right? Which are, you know, expensive yeah. and, and much more time consuming. So what I'm problem, sorry. what problem does that solve for maybe some, you know, actually I'm in medical, I'm not, uh, not entirely sure what issues that, you know, the, the protein folding, um, you know, figuring out that, how, how does that help? Well, again, it, it, it it's basically understanding the shape of protein molecules, sure. which would determine their, their function, right, and, and the ways that they can yeah. be used, and also their, their interaction, potential interaction 
with drugs, right? So this yeah. is also a tool for for drug discovery. Again, there are techniques that that you know already allow us to to figure that out, but they're very expensive and they take a lot of time. So sure. what that means is that only a small number, a relatively small number of the protein molecules that are important in biology have, you know, the, the shape has been determined, right? So DeepMind is actually now in the process of using this, this new technology to essentially create a complete database or a library of all these protein molecules and their molecular shapes, right? Which is, and this is the first time that's possible. So this is a truly important breakthrough, yeah. um, which is going to have, you know, vastly important ramifications for for science medicine bio biochemistry and so forth so that's maybe the, the most concrete example so far yeah. of a really critical breakthrough that's going to be disruptive but the same technologies are being used in other areas not just in drug discovery but in the discovery of new uh, materials you know i give many examples of this in the book rule of the robots i think that ai is also going to be a critically important tool for kind of assimilating information for accessing scientific information in different Sources, for example, in scientific papers and textbooks and clinical studies and experiments, and then kind of bringing that all together and finding the connections that might not be obvious to to a person because a person would would never be able to read, you know, all of this material, right? And this is this is something, for example, that IBM Watson has been working on for a while with somewhat mixed success. But but there are many initiatives in this area, and I think that this is one of the most important applications going forward of. Um, AI to scientific research. Uh, And then in the general area of medicine, we're already seeing many applications in diagnosis, especially in in radiology, right, where you're looking at the ability to scan images. There already have been systems that have been shown to at least match, maybe in some cases, exceed the capability of radiologists in specific instances where it comes to looking at a mammogram, for example, and trying to figure out, is there cancer there? So I think what what we're on a path to is maybe not so much that technology is going to displace doctors. I don't think that will likely happen for a very long time, but I do think we're very firmly on a course to where artificial intelligence is going to become kind of an important second opinion, you know, a a resource that doctors will use to get a second take on, on their judgment. Um, And that's going to, I think, ultimately result in kind of a democratization of of really the the best medical expertise out there. It will be almost as though whatever doctor you happen to be seeing, and it may not be the most talented doctor, you know, that's available, that doctor will have access to this resource that will bring um, the best available judgment and, 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 and experience. Um, to bear on almost every problem. So that means that, that we'll all have access to, in a sense, the best world-class medical knowledge and expertise. You know, I, I've been reading a little bit about this in the context of medicine, you know, especially when it comes to various treatments and cancer and, and um, that sort of thing. And I know where there's groups already kind of sort of looking into this concept of you know, looking at, you know, what kind of chemotherapeutics uh, are treating an individual's cancer as opposed to following necessarily, you know, what we're taught in medical school, which is, you know, a certain type of cancer will react to a certain type of uh, chemotherapeutic. But what that makes me think about is really a shift in medicine from a, you know, what works for most people to what works for the individual person. And I'm just curious uh, it, what you're what you know about in that space when it comes to the application to personalized medicine. Are you seeing any technology or companies that are currently working on anything using AI there? Yeah, definitely. I I couldn't give you names of companies, but I think 
that's clearly happening. I mean, many of the drug companies are, are you know, I think that's generally considered to be the next frontier. Um, from talking to some of the people running the the startup companies doing drug discovery and things, what they say is that a lot of the low hanging fruit in terms of you know, drugs that are really widely applicable and are really going to be effective, you know, that's probably already been harvested, right? Those problems have been solved. So the next frontier in terms of drug discovery and new drugs is likely to be more specialized applications that, that can, you know, help smaller number of people. But of course that is going to require manipulating an enormous amount of data. And that's generally, you know, that's one of the, the truths of artificial intelligence across the board, right? You're seeing this in many different areas. You see it in agriculture where you now have systems that, instead of spraying a whole field with fertilizer, can actually focus on individual plants and analyze each plant and figure out, you know, what's the status of this plant? Does it need more water? Does it need more fertilizer? And, and so, you know, that's, that's sort of a general theme with AI, that it makes that possible because you've got machines that can look at, you know, incomprehensible amounts of data and, and you know, infinite some amount of patience, right, that no human being would be able to do. So, whether you're talking about um, customizing applications for medicine or also in other areas, you know, that's one of the primary benefits of the technology. There's a, you know, a lot of smart people, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and they warn about AI and they, um, you know, talk about the potential pitfalls and dangers of it. What's your perspective on that? What, I mean, are we in store for uh, a moment in technology where, you know, there's a very, uh, there's a balance of uh, disruption that becomes negative, uh, you know, because of AI. Um, is it, you know, AI is the worry and AI, the intelligence itself, almost like out of a science fiction movie where, you know, the AI start to destroy human beings. What is the reality in terms of, you know, what what the real pitfalls and what the dangers are with the technology? You know, that's a really crucial thing that I, I talk a lot about in the book. Um, the important thing to understand there is that we can first acknowledge there definitely are real risks and dangers that are going to come coupled with artificial intelligence. However, it's also important to realize that I think there, there are kind of two categories there in terms of, of these risks. Um, and the category that you just alluded to, which has gotten a lot of press with people like Elon Musk talking about it, is what's called existential risk. This concern that someday we might have, in essence, a super intelligent machine, right? A machine right. that is beyond the smartest human being. Maybe even perhaps this machine would be so smart that it would make us look you know, like the difference between a person and a mouse right. in terms of the, the various levels of intelligence there. And then there, there is a, a legitimate concern at that point that we would lose control of this technology, right? That, that not so much that the machine would become overtly malicious, like in the Terminator movie, yeah. but rather that we might have this incredibly intelligent resource and we would set it on a path to accomplish some goal, but then it would act in ways that we don't anticipate since after all it's much smarter than us and that's some of the ramifications of that could could cause harm to us right that we would essentially then not be able to stop this process um in that situation with the artificial intelligence is a concern that it would have decision making capacity and therefore that's what would make it dangerous i'm just curious you know generally to sort of drill down on that 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 fear especially when it's coming from these guys who, you know, obviously are thinking about it pretty deeply. Right. Um, yes, it definitely would have decision-making ability and it would have the ability to impact the world, right, to do things, right. uh, to take actions. Um, and it might have been, you know, set forth to accomplish some specific goal, 
but then it may take actions that we don't anticipate or which 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 we really didn't intend which which could potentially cause us harm um and that that's what that's what people are worrying about and that that could if if we truly lost control of a system like that it could you know represent an existential threat right it could potentially wipe you know we could tell it to cure disease and it might decide this is a cartoonish example yeah. but we could tell it to to eliminate all cancer and it could decide that well one way to get rid of cancer is to kill everybody right, <laughs> yeah, Some, right something right. like that i mean that's kind right. of a ridiculous example but that's you know a much more subtle sophisticated example of that kind of thing is what's known as the control problem or the alignment problem where we worry about and that's what elon musk is is worrying about when he says that artificial intelligence is more dangerous than nuclear weapons or or more dangerous than north korea and all, all this stuff and what i would say is that yes that is a legitimate concern but it also is at a minimum decades away it may be more than half a century away maybe even you know 100 years away so it is something to be concerned with but it's certainly not an immediate concern so i would put that kind of in its separate category of of risk that i think it's good that some people are worried about this um and there are some very smart people working on this for example the most prominent is nick bostrom at at uh, oxford university who wrote a book called superintelligence and he's he's got a group there that's working on this and there's some other small think tanks um concerned with this problem and i think that's that's a good thing however i wouldn't want to blow that up beyond that and 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 have it consume our our attention because there is another category of risk and 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 danger that is associated with artificial intelligence and these are things that are absolutely on top of us right these are things that are beginning to manifest now and are definitely going to unfold over the coming years and 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 the coming decade um and this is things like and and this is about unlike the first category this is not about the machines waking up and becoming intelligent of their own volition and and doing something that harms us this is primarily about other people using, using artificial yeah. intelligence in ways that is going to be destructive okay and some of the categories here are threats to security using artificial intelligence to attack our infrastructure you know attack computer systems using artificial intelligence to create what is known as deep fakes for example mm-hmm. which are you know very very high fidelity fabrications of video or audio and this could be used to create chaos right you could sure. attack you know i give one fictional example in the in in the book where it's used to attack a politician right to to put literally put words into the mouth of a politician to make them say something that is self destructive right that you could yeah. you could you could do that on election day basically or the day before an election right and and you know create chaos um in that way i mean we've all seen the power of viral videos right um sure in terms of generating social protest and 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 so you know social unrest some someone could fabricate a video right that that caused that to happen so these are all dangers um another thing that people really worry about is the potential weaponization of artificial intelligence right you could have and i think it's very likely that we soon will have fully autonomous weapons in other words for example drones that rather than being controlled by a person are fully autonomous and have the ability to target someone and attack right um there's a uh, uh, one of the people i i actually interviewed in in the course of this book is is a guy named but his name is Stuart Russell who's a professor at UC Berkeley one of the top people working in ai and he created a youtube video which which you can watch is called slaughterbots and it really lays out in a very graphic way the 
the potential for fully autonomous weapons and how dangerous they could be. Because the the issue there is that, it, you know, they might initially be developed by militaries. You might have hundreds or thousands of swarming drones that could attack people, for example. But these these are weapons that could easily fall into the hands of terrorists, right, and could be deployed in a very terrifying way. And it'd be very hard to to really defend against that. So it's it's something to really be concerned with. Other risks and dangers are that are already developing. Of course, there have been known cases of bias in artificial intelligence systems, racial bias and things like facial recognition um, and some mm-hmm. other algorithms, even algorithms used in the court system, for example, to determine whether someone should be released on bail and so forth. Some of these have been shown to be racially biased. There's been gender bias as well in, for example, res- resume screening systems that have that are being used to determine, you know, what should someone get an interview when once a resume comes in. So that's another you know, area of, of real concern and, and companies are actively working on addressing those issues. So, you know, there are real concerns around this. And, and of course, the, the other issue that I've talked a lot about, and, and actually my previous books were primarily focused on, is the potential impact on jobs, right? The fact that sure. a lot of jobs, especially jobs that are more routine and repetitive and so forth, are going to be heavily impacted by this. And I think that that is going to be a driver of even more inequality in our society. I think that a lot of you know jobs that now provide a solid income are likely to be impacted. And this will include not just blue collar jobs, you know, not just, you know, working in an Amazon warehouse or a fast food restaurant. Um, all those, those areas certainly will be impacted, but it will also include a great number of uh, white collar jobs. You know, if you've got a job sitting in front of a laptop doing some relatively routine manipulation of information, you know, cranking out the same report again and again, or doing the same type of analysis, all of that is going to be heavily susceptible to software automation going forward. And I think that could potentially be very disruptive. So there are a number of, you know, concerns associated with with the deployment of AI that we really need to, you know, focus on. We're going to need, I think, some policies and, and regulation in order to address those. Yeah. And the challenge with that, it, it seems to me, is even with policies and regulations, we can only control what happens in this country. And so along that lines, I'm curious, like, where is where is the U.S. compared to, say, China when it comes to uh, AI technology? I mean, are we are, are we uh, sort of ahead of the pack right now? Are we, you know, are we uh, not giving this enough attention in this country? Or, or how, how do you view that? I, I would say that at the moment, certainly the United States and the West more generally is is ahead. But absolutely, China is putting enormous resources into this and catching up and could well surpass us. And this is a real concern. And this is, again, this is something that I really focus on in, in, in rule of robots. I've got a whole chapter on this. And uh, this is a, definitely one of the greatest concerns because China, first of all, is using this technology in a very dystopian way, both in their own country and in terms of how they're exporting it, right? They're building in particular facial recognition systems that, that really is, I mean, they've essentially created an Orwellian yeah you know, sort of a big brother society. And this is, of course, has been especially focused on the Uyghurs, right? The ethnic group in, in Western China that, yeah. that um, has really been subject to a lot of oppression. Um, but they're they're deploying the, the technology across, across China and they're also exporting it to uh, other more authoritarian regimes, especially in the Middle East, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia and the uh, the UAE and so forth, they're already using these technologies and it's beginning to encroach also on the West. So, 
you know, I think the issue of, of, of privacy versus surveillance is, is something that, that we really are all going to have to make trade-offs in different countries. You know, in the West, we, we really need to look at that. I mean, definitely these kinds of technologies do provide benefits in terms of lowering crime and, and preventing terrorism and things like this, but there is a real trade-off in terms of privacy. So that's something that we need to focus on. Um, and make sure that we have a public discussion about those kinds of trade-offs. Uh, and the other thing, the act, but the, the potential for a race with China in this technology is really something that we, we really need to take very seriously and we should be putting more resources into it. You know, it is not just a commercial race. These technologies clearly have applications in the military arena, in the, in the security arena. So to the extent that, our, you know, that China becomes a leader in AI and maybe surpasses us is a real concern in those areas. And they do have a number of advantages. I mean, China has got a population that is roughly four times the United States. They've got an enormous number of very mm. smart, talented, motivated engineers and computer scientists, young people that, that are extraordinarily motivated to learn about this technology and contribute to it. And as a and partly as a result of that, you see uh, a wide range of startup companies over there that are really at the forefront, especially in, in areas like facial recognition. So they're really pushing the envelope and the, and, and the government, the Chinese government is putting enormous resources into this. They've got a, a, an explicit plan to basically make China the world leader in AI by, by 2030. Um, you know, Xi Jinping is personally involved in this. There, there He gave a a talk at one point and, and people saw books about artificial intelligence on, on the bookshelf behind the guy as he was speaking. So, I mean, he's pretty engaged with this. Uh, so it's, it's a real competition. And again, it's got real applications to, you know, military and security. And in China, they actually have it written into their constitution that uh, Chinese companies are required to cooperate with, with, you know, the military over there. Right. They call that. Right. Uh, military-civilian fusion. Whereas over here, that's not always the case. I mean, we've seen a number of instances where uh, employees at companies like Google have revolted because the company took a contract with the Pentagon, right? So, right. so there is, I mean, obviously they have the right to do that. You know, this is a free society, but I do think we need to worry about the asymmetry there, right? That, sure. that you know, yeah. China has got all these, these, top of the line tech companies that are absolutely required to work with their government. And we've got a tech industry over here, which is much more ambivalent about that. So we need to worry about an imbalance there because we really and truly cannot afford to fall behind in this technology. I mean, a, a world where China is vastly more influential and, uh, you know, maybe outstrips us in terms of this technology is not going to be, you know, a good word, good world for, for anyone. I don't think so. This is, this is, um, a real concern. And we definitely do need to be putting more resources into this challenge. And, and we probably need to have a more concrete plan in terms of what the government is doing and, and more co collaboration with, with industry here. You allude, alluded to this um, already in, in just through jobs, changes in jobs, both blue collar and white collar because of AI. Have you thought about sort of uh, the overall impact? And you know, I guess futurist side of you looking at the impact of the economy uh, in the U.S. Um, or the global economy, you know, the way we do things right now with all these imports, if we could do them all, you know, with robots, you know, just, just, you know, I'm just trying to just thinking out loud. It just seems like you're looking at a very, very different global dynamic. If, if you know. Yeah, I think it's going to be very disruptive. I, 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 you know, I truly believe the artificial intelligence is going to be 
one of the most important forces that shapes our future. I mean, I think that it's arguably our most consequential technology. In terms of its impact on the economy, there are going to be two sides to it, right? Obviously, AI is going to bring enormous benefits. It's going to make industries more efficient. It's going to make it possible to produce goods and services more inexpensively. And that's going to mean at lower cost, that's going to make all the things that people need to thrive, whether it's material things like food or, or, you know, things like education is going to make those things more available um, at lower cost. And AI is also going to make it possible to create entirely new um, products and services. I mean, we were talking earlier about drug discovery, right? So so you're going to have breakthroughs in, in new medicines and so forth. So that's, that's the positive side of it. The side of it that I would worry about is the impact on employment and on inequality and on the distribution of income. You know, right now, jobs are the primary mechanism that gets money into the hands of the people in a society, the consumers, so that then they can go out and create the demand that drives the economy, right? I mean, you, you have to have people that have the income and the confidence to purchase the products mm-hmm. and services being yep. produced by the economy. If you don't have that, you're not going to have, you know, vibrant economic growth. So it's that imbalance that I really worry about. Um, and, and it's going to be driven largely by the fact that I think any kind of work that is fundamentally routine, repetitive, predictable is is going to be at risk of being automated at some point yeah. over you know, roughly the next decade or two. It's certainly a different, uh, um, you know, something maybe, uh, I guess, the on a much more, perhaps a larger level, the, the Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, going from, uh, you know, not having farm equipment to having farm equipment, uh, that, that kind of change. Or yeah, exactly. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's a very good example that people bring up. And many people will bring up that example, um, the mechanization of agriculture, as kind of a pushback against the idea that, well, we're going to have a problem. Because, of course, that happened. And yet we don't have people permanently em- unemployed, right? Right. So what happened is that, yes, it, if you go back to like the late 1800s in the United States, at least half of the population, half of the, of the workforce was engaged in farming, right? They were working on farms. Then you had tractors and combine harvesters and all this equipment come along and those jobs disappeared. Um, And what happened is that you did have short-term unemployment and disruption, but over the longer term, what happened is of course, this this new sector manufacturing appeared and absorbed all those workers. So those people moved from farms, basically to factories, right? So you can imagine a worker that was once on a farm doing some kind of routine work, maybe by 1950, that worker is now standing on an assembly line yeah. doing routine work, right? And then what we saw is that something similar happened to the manufacturing sector. You know, manufacturing is also heavily automated. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's also offshored, right? It's gone to China right. and to other countries. And so as a result of that, um, a much lower fraction of our workforce is now engaged in manufacturing. So we've now got in agriculture where it was once half, it's now less than 2% of the workforce. In manufacturing, where it was once at least a third of the workforce, it's now less than 10% of the workforce. So what that means is that all those people are now working essentially in the service sector, right? Which is what dominates our, our economy. Right. So people have moved historically. So what you've seen is that this impact, this technological impact, increased automation has kind of happened a sector at a time, right? First agriculture, then manufacturing, and now everyone's working in the service sector. Uh, But what you're going to see this time is that 
as I've, as I've been saying, artificial intelligence is a general purpose technology, a systemic technology. It's going to be like electricity. It's going to scale across everything. So it's going to, it's, it's continuing to automate agriculture. Even that last, you know, 2% of jobs is under threat because of robots and machines being used in agriculture. It's going to continue to force down employment in manufacturing as, as, as factories begin to approach full automation. But most importantly, artificial intelligence is going to begin, begin to scale across the service sector, right? So it's going to bring automation also to, you know, this last remaining sector. And so what's happening this time is that any kind of job in any of those sectors that is fundamentally routine and repetitive, where you're doing basically the same sort of thing or sit, you know, facing the same kinds of problems again and again is going to be susceptible to automation across the board. And this time, you know, I can't imagine that there's going to be some new sector that is going to rise in the way that manufacturing and later services did to absorb all the tens of millions of workers that are potentially going to be displaced. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not some labor intensive new sector that's going to arise for people to do things that are, you know, largely routine and repetitive, right. Because we now have a technology that is going to, you know, essentially vaporize all of that. Um, So I think that's the problem we face going forward is that now, whereas in the past, people have adjusted to technological impacts by switching sectors, right? Going from agriculture to manufacturing to services, but still doing something that is more or less routine. Um, In the future, they're going to have to adapt by figuring how to do something that's fundamentally non-routine, maybe something that is creative or something that really involves building relationships with people, for example. Um, And these are things that, you know, a lot of people will maybe successfully make those transitions, assuming that those jobs are sufficient in number, those jobs that that we still can't automate, right? But I think there's a real risk that a lot of people will be left behind, right? I mean, not everyone has the talent to do creative work. Right. Not everyone has the personality traits to do, you know, really people relationship building type type work, like being, you know, even doing something like elder care where you have a very, you know, a relationship with an older person, you're helping them with their personal needs. That's a job that we're definitely going to need a lot more people to do that. But, you know, it's not clear that you can necessarily take a truck driver and and have that person do that job. Right. I mean, there there are differences in in talents and personalities and so forth. So I, I do think there's, there's a real risk of a lot of people essentially being left out and, that will drive increased inequality. Being in uh, Silicon Valley as you are, you know, we, our ecosystem, we tend to be, we're, we're generally real estate investors, but it's always interesting to me to kind of look at where the big money, you know, investors in Silicon Valley, where the tech money is going. And is there specific areas of AI that, that seem to be attracting the attention of the larger and you know, the venture groups and stuff like that? Or is it just across the board and AI yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely across the board, but, but a couple of the areas we've mentioned previously, certainly there are many, many startups out there using artificial intelligence for drug discovery or some sort of general biomedical type application. You know, this is an area that's gotten a lot of uh, venture capital. Sure. Uh, another area that I think is going to be incredibly important is in robotics, building more dexterous robots. We've got a couple of, um, a, a number of startups that are trying to build robots that begin to approach human dexterity. Companies like Vicarious, for example, out here. And these are, you know, they've gotten venture capital from not just the VC firms, but some of the top people in industry. Uh, You know, people like Jeff Bezos, for example, have 
invested in these startups. And, and the motivation behind that, of course, is to bring more automation to environments like Amazon warehouses. Um, if yep. you look in yep. <laughs> which Amazon course, warehouse today, those jobs too, right? Those jobs. <laughs> right, right. And, and, right. You know, Amazon warehouses have been a bright spot for employment, right? They hire yeah. a lot of people. They got hundreds of thousands yeah. of people and, and they're hiring more people. But if you go inside one of those warehouses, what you find out is they have also got hundreds of thousands of robots um, across Amazon. So they've got an environment right now that includes a huge number of robots, but also lots of people. And the people are all there doing the thing that the robots can't yet do, right? And for the most part, in, in environments like warehouses, that involves doing what's called stowing and, and picking products. In other words, putting, putting products on inventory shelves and then retrieving items from inventory shelves to fulfill orders, because that requires human-level dexterity, hand-eye coordination, you know, spatial recognition, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Robots can't yet do that, but that's exactly right. the challenge that these startup companies are working on, right? Yeah. So Bezos actually said a couple of years ago that he thought within 10 years they would have a robotic hand that could, you know, approximate human dexterity in terms of its ability to grasp items. And once huh. that occurs, you know, th those hundreds of thousands of jobs in Amazon warehouses are going to be at high risk yeah. because... Yeah. That's what the people are doing there, right? And, and of course, it's not just going to be Amazon warehouses. It's going to be fast food restaurants, uh, retail stores, many, many other environments. Um, and I think actually the other thing that we see is that to some extent, the pandemic has actually accelerated this process mm -hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. Because, of course, now we have this new focus on social distancing, right? Yeah. We don't want too many workers crowded in to an environment. Of course, if you can use robots, that helps yeah. to address that. There's yeah. also... Um, an increased emphasis on, on hygiene, right. In terms of food preparation, things like this. So if you can have a robot doing that and a person never contacts the food that can actually be potentially a marketing advantage, right. You, you know, there, there's definitely been a shift in consumer preferences, right. The way we, we all view human contact and things like this has definitely changed as a result of this pandemic. And I think to some extent, um, those preferences are going to be more permanent, right. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and the other thing that's happened is that right now, partly as a kind of an overhang from the pandemic, in many areas, there's actually a worker shortage, right? Um, mm -hmm. Sure. Businesses, especially in, in the lower wage, yep. you know, restaurant industry and so forth that, you know, they're, they're struggling to hire people. Yeah. And so they, they're, they're definitely examples of, you know, restaurants and, and, and large chains that are investing in these technologies exactly for that reason. Sure. Um, so that's going to push it forward even faster. Okay, so one last topic I, I i could i have like a million questions for you that popped to mind but i, I don't want to keep you all day obviously so one last question i want to ask you about is sort of the interplay of what's happening with ai and what's happening with blockchain is there some intersection there that's important for us to to be uh to notice or is you know are, is that completely different technology it is different technology but is there really no relationship with it it, it makes me think that you know, obviously in terms of cybersecurity and things like that, uh, that, uh, you know, are some of these, you know, blockchains as um, secure as we think they're going to be if there's AI? Uh, anyway, just your thoughts on blockchain and AI. Well, I definitely think there's a relationship there. And many of the people that are working on, you know, blockchain and, and, and cyber currencies and stuff are definitely leveraging AI and looking for ways to leverage it. Um and absolutely in the security arena more, more generally, um, 
AI is going to be absolutely critical and it's going to take essentially two sides on that. You know, it's going right. to be used. Yeah, you know, it's going to be very much going to be like the kind of arms race you see with, um, you know, computer viruses, right? Where yeah. Yeah. you've got the black hat people yep. creating the viruses and then you've got the the white hat people at companies like Symantec, right? That are trying to respond to that. And you're absolutely going to see um, the same thing with artificial intelligence. You know, you're going to see what are called adversarial attacks on systems. You're going to see it deployed to um, attack infrastructure. And it's the only way to potentially defend against that is going to be used, be to use artificial intelligence um, as a tool to, to promote um, security. So it's going to be just an incredibly important technology. Right. I, you know, there is not a single arena where it's not going to be applied. Um, and certainly for, for anyone running any kind of business uh, to, to, you know, leave artificial intelligence off the table and say, I'm not going to yeah. adopt this technology would be, would be almost tantamount to disconnecting from the electrical grid. You know, it would be, yeah. you know, yeah. malpractice at that level, right. It would be, you know, yeah. that the kind of thing that would ultimately leave you, leave you simply leave you behind. So right. this, this is just going to be an incredibly consequential technology that literally is going to touch everything, every industry sector, every aspect of our lives. So no one can afford not to be familiar with, um, with this technology and its, and its uh, implications. Again, the book, uh, the latest book is rule of the robots, how artificial intelligence will transform everything. This uh, sounds like a book that we should all uh, read and, and get acquainted with in a, in a hurry. Um, Martin, your, your, your website is uh, mfordfuture.com and tell us, uh, tell us what you do there. Well, that's essentially a website. It's got, you know, um, links to lots of articles that I've written um, and, um, you know, reviews of my books and things like that. Um, I also have a, a Twitter account, uh, also M Ford Future. And on that, I tweet, you know, pretty much every day, um, often to links to articles about artificial intelligence and how it's progressing um, and the latest news sources and, and so forth. So that may be a, an interesting resource if you want to keep up. You know, yeah. with this technology as, as we move forward. Fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. I uh, appreciate you coming and 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 uh, maybe have you back sometime in the in the years to come. Sure, that'd be great. Thanks a lot for having me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know that uh, I did. I think it's really cool stuff. And again. You know, I know we like to keep it boring. We like to keep, uh, you know, most of our money and people are going to continue to need to live places and people are going to need to put their stuff places and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that looking into artificial intelligence space as a potential, you know, investments in companies, uh, asymmetric risk opportunities is something that I think is really for those of you who are looking to, you know, get into something that could really take off, I really think this is an area that you really have to think about. I, I certainly can't say that I'm an expert on this, but I encourage you to read the book and uh, learn as much about it. And again, just learn about as much stuff as you can, because that's where you're going to find opportunities. And, you know, if you see where the world is headed, you know, just like we talked about Gretzky uh, in the introduction there, if you see where the puck is headed, uh, you're, you're much more likely to score. So that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, 
consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.